Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to let you know that if you were a coffee drinker, I have some critical information you need to know. You see, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants people are consuming all around the world. It's rich in chlorogenic and caffeic acid, which are polyphenols that stabilize your blood sugar, support gut health and improve your brain. And they also stimulate autophagy and deep cellular healing. So coffee has many amazing health benefits, but there's a dark side to coffee. It often carries mold, dangerous mycotoxins, and is heavily sprayed with pesticides that lead to chronic disease. It's also acidic, causing stomach issues, and many have to stop drinking coffee as they get older because it irritates their stomach lining. That's why I started drinking Life Boost Coffee. I wanted something that had all the health benefits with none of the mold and chemicals found in regular coffee. Plus, it's a shade-grown coffee, which is naturally a low-acid coffee that doesn't hurt my stomach. And they have hundreds of testimonials of people who couldn't stomach traditional coffee who can now enjoy coffee on a daily basis without any digestive discomfort. They also third-party test for 450-plus toxins, including mycotoxins, molds, heavy metals, pesticides, and even glyphosate, just to make sure it's the cleanest healthiest cup they can provide to their customers. I also really like these guys because they build schools for their farmers' children near the coffee farms where they harvest their, their coffee beans. And they're corporate sponsors of the Rainforest Trust to prevent deforestation and protect wildlife. They really care about the environment. And because you're listening to my podcast right now, you can get 50% off your first order by going to www.lifeboostdeal.com. Dot com. That's lifeboostdeal.com. They are, again, shade-grown, low-acid, clean and free of toxins, and they taste amazing. Just go to lifeboostdeal.com to get 50% off now. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're talking about the best protein foods, muscle protein synthesis, and phytonutrient intake, how important phytonutrients are. We're going to go into what the research is showing on grass-fed versus grain-fed beef. You guys don't want to miss that. We're also going to talk about some interesting responses, this anabolic derangement syndrome that a lot of people that are overweight or obese have where their body is just not able to actually build muscle tissue because of this alteration in the way that their body responds to protein and uh, this muscle inflammation process that they're dealing with. And to discuss this, I have got one of the top food and nutrition researchers, Dr. Stephen Van Vliet, who is a PhD. He's done a lot of work with Duke University, and his work focuses on the effects of primary and secondary compounds. When we look at primary compounds like your protein, carbohydrates, fats, and vitamins, whereas secondary compounds are your phytonutrients, your polyphenols, your antioxidants, and he looks at these and the molecular molecular mechanisms by which they impact human metabolism. 
His work often also involves physical activity interventions and utilizes an integrative approach to improve human health. And he performs clinical and translational studies to evaluate the effects of whole food ingestion and physical activity interventions on body composition, physical function, inflammation, insulin action, and intracellular signaling pathways involved in regulating muscle mass with advancing age. His work has been published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the Journal of Nutrition, and the Journal of Physiology. You can see his published studies and their open access, so you can actually read through the whole studies. Just go to stephenvanvliet.com, and we'll have his uh, his link in our show notes. So you can check that out. But this is a really fascinating interview. You guys are going to love this information. If you are, you know, a health nerd, nutrition nerd like me, you're going to, you're going to, uh, geek out on this. This is really good stuff. And if you haven't left us a review, now is the time to do that. Leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. That helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thanks so much for doing that. Thank you for being a part of our community and let's go into the show. Well, Dr. Stephen Van Vliet, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, David. Pleasure to be Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about what the day in the life looks like for a human nutrition researcher. Um, what does your day start like? Are you doing intermittent fasting? Um, what is your what do your meals look like? Let's talk a little bit about that. Great. Yeah. So usually my day starts early in the morning, uh, usually around 6 a.m. or so. Either go to the gym in the morning to lift weights. Um, and then after that, there's a lot of research participants that are coming. Usually blood draws start around uh, 7.30 or so. So the morning is usually filled with blood draws or placing IVs for our nutrition studies. Usually there's some sort of re repeated blood sampling involved in those protocols. Um, usually those end at around 10, 11 or so. Uh, it's when we're done with that. Then uh, usually either working on the computer for a bit, emails and grant writing. It's a lot of uh, time spent, mm. uh, manuscript writing, uh, or being in, in the wet lab, uh, uh, helping students with, with analysis, uh, a lot of sample preparation. We do a lot of food metabolomics work in our lab, meaning that we study food samples that we get from various farms and various uh, uh, stores and practices. So those all need to be processed, extracted. We look at fatty acids in those, phytochemicals, amino acids, uh, and, and the various other nutritional compounds. So that's usually how my day is spent. And then uh, I try to stop work at around five or so. Then, uh, yeah, dinner dinner with my family and maybe a little bit of reading. And I'm usually in bed by 8.30. So I go to bed early. Yeah, you got a busy day there. You're starting your weightlifting. You're, you're hitting the gym early. Uh, hitting the weights. What are you typically eating throughout the day? What What does your nutrition usually look like? Yeah, it's usually three meals, uh, mm -hmm. very high protein. So I might have uh, usually workouts workouts faster than in the morning. Yeah. So I'll get up, and maybe maybe have you know some uh, some some caffeine or something like that, just to give me. Uh, sure. Give me yeah. Weight. yeah, that's right. And then uh, have a big breakfast afterwards. Usually some some sourdough bread with some. Uh, I'm Dutch, so I like liverwurst. So usually some <laughs> liverwurst with some eggs on, on sourdough bread with uh, a bunch of different vegetables. And then uh, after that, uh, I'll have lunch. Usually some, yeah, some maybe some potatoes, some rice with some some fish or, or meat. And again, a bunch of vegetables. And then dinner is usually not as many carbohydrates. It's a little bit more higher fat uh, dinner. So I might have, uh, you know, some cheese or maybe some... Uh, uh, 
uh, fatty fish or some meat and, you know, maybe like a dessert with some nut butters or things like that, uh, that, uh, that I like to eat. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, three meals a day, usually around, you know, lift weights or 100, 160, 170 grams of protein, uh, carbohydrates around my workout, a little bit more higher fat, uh, at, at my nightly meal. And, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of whole foods, I should say. And also yeah. a lot of, a lot of fruits and vegetables, I would say, I consume, I think about three to four pounds of fruits and vegetables combined a day. Wow, so. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting your phytonutrients in that way. And I know you've done some interesting research when it comes to looking at isolated proteins versus whole food based proteins. In fact, I think that's kind of when you, how you first got started. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So we indeed, that was done part of my PhD work um, yeah. back before that, that type of work, it had been very little work study, studying whole foods, right? But uh, most of it had been done on protein shakes, essentially. Soy protein, whey protein, casein protein, which is you know, typically what you'd buy in the powdered form. Now, apart from some athletes, right, and even athletes get the majority of their daily protein from whole food sources. But there had been surprisingly little work done on whole food sources. So we did a series of studies uh, which involved profiling beef, it involved profiling milk, uh, whole eggs, egg whites. And one of the surprising things that we found was is that, yes, amino acids are important in dictating the response, but the quote-unquote bioactive compounds that are within whole food sources and bioactive compounds can be vitamins, minerals, but also the thousands of, uh, you know, phytochemicals, uh, peptides, microRNAs, you name it, uh, sort of the gray matter or the dark matter of nutrition that was also impacting those responses, we think. So we did a profiling study, for instance, comparing whole eggs and egg whites. And what you often hear in sort of the weightlifting bodybuilding world is that uh, you have to eat egg whites because um, the fat delays digestion yeah. absorption. That's, that part yeah. we need found. The peak amino acid availability after the whole eggs was at about, I think, 120 minutes, whereas with the egg whites, it was like 60 or 90 minutes or so. Despite that, the whole eggs gave our stronger muscle anabolic response, which is hmm. probably due to the bioactive compounds found in New York, which you know are kind of primed hmm. if they were uh, to be fertilized to grow a, a, a baby chick out of it, right? So it has a bunch of growth factors and, and, and micronutrients in there that uh, can stimulate uh, uh, metabolism and uh, and and our uh, muscle protein synthetic response. So we found that in a series of study, and we made some interesting findings too with the milk, where probably uh, the bioactive compounds in milk were uh, enhancing the muscle anabolic response. So the the muscle anabolic response was typically predicted by the amino acid profile, but it's, it turns out once you start ingesting whole foods, the picture becomes a little bit more complicated. Right, exactly. Because, you know, in, in the bodybuilding circuit, it's always talked about whey protein because it's a fast ingesting protein, right? It stimulates muscle protein synthesis quickly, but that would be more effective than like a full milk protein, um, at least in the in the early stages. And then, like you said, egg whites would be more effective than the egg yolk because, you know, the fat is actually going to slow the breakdown, right, of the protein. And you're saying, hey, you actually got better anabolic responses with the overall whole foods. And that may have to do with not just, you know, the primary, which is kind of like this, this reductionistic view of looking at um, nutrition, where it's like, it's all about the protein or all about the amino acids, but there's all the, also these secondary compounds that are associated with the whole food matrix 
that are synergizing with the primary compounds to have a, just a, a better overall effect at allowing for the, the, the body to build muscle and recover from the exercise more effectively. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I couldn't have uh, summarized it any any better than that. That's exactly what we're uh, what we're seeing is that the whole food matrix, probably in a synergistic way, is um, impacting muscle protein synthetic responses. And as we're probably finding out now, in sort of a, a broader effects on on metabolism too. So we just we were studying muscle uh, physiology and biology at that time, but you just kind of see that in other aspects of metabolism too, and and that and that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, and when I was looking at your study with the whole egg versus um, just the egg white, you talked a lot about a lot of these other nutrients that are in there, like zinc, selenium, some different minerals that could have a positive effect on possibly like testosterone or muscle building. Um, you also talked about some different fatty acids. I wasn't aware that uh, palmitic acid, right, which is a, a long chain fatty acid, has an anabolic effect as well. Yeah, some some work suggests that, and uh, to be fair, a lot of that is gleaned from uh, either in vitro work. Uh, so you throw maybe some palmitic acid on a, mm. on a C2 C12 muscle cell, and uh, you see a, a more sort of growth of the or of these of these cells. Yeah. Essentially, um, same with some of the old work on vitamins, minerals, as cofactors and proteasidic responses. A lot of gleaned from animal work. So. Certainly, and I know I sound like a scientist now because we always say we need more data, but we actually do need more data. Um, but there is definitely sort of an indication in the literature that yes, these these cofactors uh, can play a role. And uh, granted, a lot of it is derived from animal and uh, and sort of petri dish models. But also, sort of what we know about metabolism in in general uh, is that uh, yeah, these cofactors do play a role. So presumably in uh, well, presumably in, in, in humans, they, they would play a role too. What's a little bit surprising about that data is, is that, yes, the uh, participants in that study were fasted, um, but they didn't have any nutrient deficiencies. So it was kind of still mm -hmm. surprising that acutely we see an effect for these bioactive compounds because these were well-nourished, young, healthy men that lifted weights. So yeah. these were not uh, uh, undernourished people that uh, were rectifying uh, nutrient deficiencies on, and uh, but we still saw the acute response. So that was uh, was very interesting to see. And you know, in retrospect, <clears throat> there had been a study done by uh, by uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Tipton in the two thousands that looked at whole milk versus skim milk, and they also found greater. Uh, uh, muscle muscle proteins that digress or i should say net protein balance so presumably there's a higher mm -hmm. anabolic response in response to whole milk versus skim milk and when we did that study of like 12 years later or so we kind of found the same thing so uh, it was in line with the broader literature to uh, that suggests that yes even in the acute sense having the whole food matrix or ingesting mm -hmm. some of these nutrients in the whole food matrix can actually have a, a sort of an elevated response as a result of that yeah, and really the only main difference between whole milk and skim milk there is going to be the fat and and fat soluble nutrients. Yeah, that that's correct. And honestly, even with eggs and egg whites, the differences in amino acid profile are so subtle that mm. even there you're kind of having a similar comparison where uh, yeah. you have the, the fat and the fat soluble nutrients in the yolk versus a, a pretty much identical uh, amino acid uh, profile.
Yeah. Now, if you were like setting up a plan for somebody, uh, as far as optimizing their muscle protein synthesis and their recovery from exercise, what would that look like? Would it look like fasted exercise followed by, you know, uh, a certain type of meal with how many grams of protein and how many grams of protein? Um, and I, obviously based on your research from whole food, I would imagine. Um, but can you kind of go through what it would look like for somebody to really optimize their, their recovery and their muscle protein synthesis throughout the day? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, there's no per se any beneficial effects, presumably for fasted exercise versus maybe mm -hmm. exercising in a, in a fed state. It's, I think the main thing is, is work it into your schedule as, as best as you can. For me personally, doing that at 6 a.m. is good because there's uh, little emails and phone calls that I get. So <laughs> I kind of quiet the me time. So it just works best for my schedule and the afternoon is always uh, less predictable or the, or the night. Um, but I would just have, the main thing I should say is that before people get caught up too much in like the weeds of things like, oh, do I need to eat three meals? Do I need to eat six meals or things like that? Sort of overall protein intake seems to be key. While short-term studies, muscle protein synthetic responses suggest that distribution patterns are important. Long-term, it seems that if you have an overall intake of about 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight uh, of dietary protein intake, preferably from whole food sources, you're probably gonna you know, maximize uh, your muscle anabolic response, or you know, maybe if you're like a super elite athlete, then maybe those one percent matters. But for the overall population, I, I I highly doubt whether you can see the difference. So, having overall high uh, intake uh, of one point six to one point eight, and within that, I mean, I personally like to uh, sort of place my carbohydrate intake around my workout period. Also, either so I uh, should say I gave you a day in the life. But if I work out in the morning at six a.m., the night before I work out, then I'll have a rich, a carbohydrate-rich meal with some rice or potatoes, and maybe you know, slice of sourdough bread uh, afterwards. So I would like to place my carbohydrate intake uh, before and after my workouts, and then uh, uh, eat more fat in in either off days or or you know if I'm at a meal, one two meals away from uh, from when I worked out earlier, so to uh, to get enough fat in, and and in that case, I mean, I think it's also important there that uh, the average American has a low intake of omega three fatty acids, particularly mm -hmm. DHA and EPA. So focus on on fatty fish, also pasture raised uh, livestock products can, can contribute. And for me, honestly, and that's also kind of what I. Uh, I'm used to growing up doing it. So I, I take a tablespoon of cod liver oil all day, yeah. which provides me about uh, you know two and a half grams of omega three fatty acids. And there's definitely some work to suggest that omega three fatty acids do play a role in in elevating the muscle protein synthetic response. And so I'd say focus on that as well uh, uh, when you can. And um, but yeah. There's such great variation amongst people, right? That some people might do well on sort of a ketogenic diet. Even personally, I, if I don't eat enough carbohydrates, I could tell that I just missed that little bit of oomph in the mm -hmm. in the workout, right? It's just like mm -hmm. it's it's this five percent uh, decrease in in performance that I've noticed uh, uh, when I don't eat a lot of carbohydrates. But other people seem to be doing very well on uh, on on sort of a high fat diet. So uh, yeah, it's kind of you know finding. It is a little bit of experimentation. I know it kind of sounds cheesy, but uh, finding what works for you is... Finding what works.
I just wanted to take a moment and interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my new favorite products. It's the Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex. If we're gonna thrive in life, we've gotta keep inflammation under control. We know that chronic inflammation is at the root of every degenerative condition. And turmeric is the most well-studied herb for supporting a healthy inflammation response in our body. It really supports good, healthy blood flow, joint health, brain function, our ability to have a healthy mood, memory, mindset. And so when we look at what's out there on the supplement market, when it comes to turmeric, most of the supplements are using one isolated compound called curcumin. And curcumin is really, really powerful. However, what most don't really fully understand is that turmeric, whole food-based turmeric has nearly 300 other beneficial components other than just curcumin. Now, the issue with turmeric is that it has notoriously low bioavailability on its own. So it's very hard for our body to absorb. It really needs fat, and also warming herbs really help support the absorption. You think about like a curry, for example, this famous Indian dish, they've got a lot of turmeric in there. That's why it's kind of orange colored, but it's usually in a coconut milk base and it has warming herbs like black pepper, ginger, different things like that in there, cloves. And so Paleo Valley, this is what they did with their turmeric complex. They put in coconut oil, they put in black pepper. The combination there has been shown to increase the absorption of all the different compounds in the turmeric by 2000%. So they've dramatically increased the absorption level there. And they added in organic ginger, rosemary, and cloves, which are warming herbs that really support digestion, help you fully pull out as much of the nutrient value out of the turmeric as possible. These herbs also are great for supporting healthy inflammation, the immune system. They're great for the brain. Uh, and they're also great for blood sugar stability. So they're all in the Paleo Valley turmeric complex. And guys, you can save 15% off this product by going to paleovalley.com forward slash drjockers and using the coupon code jockers at checkout. That will save you 15% off your order. If you want to thrive in life, you've got to keep inflammation under control. Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex is really the best supplement out there for helping support a good inflammation process and allowing you to live at your best. So try it out today. Now, you talked about omega-3s having an anabolic effect. Do you think this has to do with perhaps reducing overall inflammation? I know in some of your research, you've found that people that are overweight or obese have kind of an anabolic, a muscle anabolic uh, derangement where they're not able to go through a, a healthy pattern of muscle protein synthesis. And one of the mechanisms is because of muscle inflammation, inflammation in their muscle. So do you think omega-3s, their anabolic effect, would it be mostly credited to improving insulin sensitivity and reducing inflammation in the muscle tissue? Yeah, I think those are certainly part of it. There has been some suggestion from, uh, well, another thing is mTOR can act or yeah. DHA can activate the mTOR pathway, mm. which is a major okay. muscle anabolic pathway. So it acts as a signaling molecule too, DHA. There has been some work suggesting, and I think this is a little bit more controversial. I'm not obviously convinced yet that you have a great incorporation of DHA and EPA into the into the membrane, the cell membrane. So you have what's yeah. called greater fluidity. So it allows for, mm. for more nutrient transfer. I think that part is a little bit, I'd say, 
a little less clear now, but that, mm. that's part of it. But yes, inflammation, uh, I'd say, uh, dampening chronic systemic inflammation. And for when it comes to individuals that are overweight or, or have obesity, I think here's the issue that we're looking at is that, and we saw this in, in chronic kidney disease patients too, they also have increased protein breakdown. So they are also breaking down their muscle at a higher rate. You have uh, branched-chain amino acids, which are major anabolic signaling molecules, constantly becoming released in the muscle free pool. So they are sort of constantly stimulating the mTOR pathway, and as a result, it becomes kind of desensitized. It is almost mm -hmm. like you constantly have high insulin levels, right, uh, in in your blood. Then you have a a, a decreased sensitivity in the muscle too. The insulin receptor yeah. becomes worn out. We, and I think the same thing is happening with sort of the muscle anabolic pathways because you're constantly stimulating it that, because of breakdown. And then by the time you're eating, there's a reduced sensitivity because there is definitely work to suggest that sort of these going down, these oscillations between high and low amino acid availability right. keeps you sensitive, not unlike uh, when you have chronically elevated insulin and glucose all the time, right? You, you lose sensitivity then. So we're seeing kind of the same thing with uh, with amino acids, and that's why, um, yeah, the elevated branch chains in individuals with mm. obesity is probably limiting their muscle anabolic response. So, and and in that case, restoring it, yeah, I mean, easier said than done. But the main way to improve your health, you see that with anyone, right? Irrespective of diet, just losing weight will, yeah, will improve your sure. health greatly in that uh, in that sense. For sure, and reducing inflammation, and so. What you mentioned, I just want to, I just want to go back to that. Is that people that are overweight, obese, they are constantly going through muscle muscle protein breakdown, right? So they're kind of in a in a catabolic state that's releasing branched chain amino acids. Now, normally the branched chain amino acids would turn them into more of an anabolic state, but because kind of like how they have insulin resistance, where their cells are not responding to the message of insulin bringing nutrients into the cell their muscle tissue is not responding to the mTOR signaling because the branched chain amino acids stimulate the mTOR pathway to, to grow and, and, and uh, go through the process of muscle protein synthesis. So they're irresponsive to that. So they're kind of in this, this pattern of mTOR resistance, basically, as well as insulin resistance. Yeah, no, I think that uh, that's a fair, uh, fair statement. Yeah. I, I that's interesting. That's what's going on. And uh, that's also why, <clears throat> individuals have uh, sort of elevated branch chain amino acids with obesity and then as a result some uh, suggestions have been made that BCAAs now cause obesity but I think that's a wrong yeah. uh, statement that's sort of it's sort of the, the result of obesity but yeah. having dietary intake then of BCAAs is not causing obesity right. I think that's sort of the, the sort of a misrepresentation that uh, sort of start to lead its own life in the in the uh, in, in the literature, um, would you say that the BCAAs are more of a byproduct of chronic muscle inflammation? Yeah, it could be inflammation. I'm sure that that will play a role too, which yeah. it's essentially there's just a reduced, uh, uh, sort of catabolism or as an increased muscle protein catabolism as a result. Uh, the BCAs are not metabolized, so they, they're, yeah. they're circulating in high amounts. And then uh, uh, it's I, I can understand that people that make the jump, well, people with obesity have high levels of circulating BCAs, therefore BCAs cause obesity, right? It's kind of like 
the story of, uh, it also always reminds me of TMAO, right? Mm. Is TMAO a cause of metabolic disease or, or is it the result mm. of metabolic disease, right? And that's uh, kind of the same way. If you have a disease state, you have high elevating levels of, of TMAO. Does that mean that if you have a, a transient rise in TMAO as a result of eating, maybe meat or fish or other things yeah. like that, right? Uh, whether that is causing metabolic disease. Clearly, fish is not causing metabolic disease. I think we can uh, all agree uh, upon that, uh, yeah. despite uh, resulting uh, in, in, in high levels of, uh, of, of TMAO. TMA, TMAO is, just for my audience, is basically like a, a byproduct of choline metabolism. Choline is a, such a powerful nutrient. We need it for all of our cell membranes. We have the phospholipid bilayer of every cell membrane. Choline plays a really important role with that, with our brain. So many different things. And a lot of people are actually choline deficient. But when we consume choline, uh, if we have dysbiosis or bad bacterial balance in our gut, we can produce a lot of this compound TMAO, which can be associated, but we don't have like a causative link for heart disease, uh, you know, uh, just a higher rate of cardiovascular inflammation. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair, uh, fair statement. That's kind of my view on it too. And, and you know, it's usually a lot of the nutrients have, have can have dual relationship where depending on the uh, state that you're in, it might uh, indicate whether you have issues mm. with metabolism or it might just indicate you have a higher dietary intake that is not an issue. Right. And another thing is uh, that popped to mind when you said that is hyperic acid. Hyperic acid is a good indicator of dietary phenolic intake mm, right. in people's diet. But if you have kidney disease, it is also a great indicator of kidney disease because you're not metabolizing that properly. Mm. So it, again, there's a, that's why with certain biomarkers, there is always a need for interpretation. If you have no, if you have a high fruit vegetable intake, I expect to have higher hyperic acid circulating in right. your body. If you have chronic kidney disease, you also have higher uh, uh, hyperic acid, but it doesn't mean hyperic acid is causing healthy people to get kidney disease. It's just if people have no other indicators of kidney disease and high fruit vegetable intake, then it's like, okay, hyperic acid indicates that. So there's always a little bit of like uh, nuance, uh, yeah. yeah, nuance in it and, and in interpretation and understanding of metabolism so that, uh, yeah, you, you uh, make a fair assessment of what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, going back to the idea of building muscle tissue, right? Is there a certain period of time, like after exercise, where somebody's going to get the best muscle protein synthesis? Should they be consuming, you know, a certain amount of protein, you know, in a certain period of time right after their exercise, or can they delay it for a few hours? Will that impact their, uh, you know, their muscle protein synthesis? Yeah. So there's no. It's sort of like a like a barn door. It's it's open for several hours and probably twenty four yeah. hours. So it's not like you have to drink a protein shake before you hit the showers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know your your muscles will fall off. That's definitely that's not what they good. teach in the bodybuilding magazines. That's right? what they teach in the bodybuilding magazines. Yeah, no, you can you can take a shower and, and cook up your meal at home, and in an hour hour and a half later, you, you're perfectly fine. Um, that being said, there's no negative to consuming protein right after your workout either. And I have to also say talking about sort of uh, you also have this uh the muscle is able to soak up a lot of carbohydrates too without right. the need for a lot of insulin because you have a translocation of of, of glute 4 towards the cell membrane that pulls in uh glucose and uh, normally you need more insulin for doing that but now as a result of contraction you have this increased sensitivity so i'd say uh 
talking about the importance of protein, yes, but also talking about the importance of, of ingesting carbohydrates at that time and doing so without the need for insulin, I'd say is a very good thing. So, and, yeah. and we know that in general, right, the high carbohydrate intake, if we have to paint with broad strokes, is that that typically uh, is, is resulting in better performance, having higher glycogen levels, especially like, you know, those, those last few reps, uh, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think, think that's important. So also the sort of the carbohydrate window after yeah. exercise, I think is important where you can ingest a combination of glucose and fructose to uh, optimize intake. And um, so, yeah, that is something I would, uh, I would also uh, recommend uh, focusing on. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the glute four transporter protein is more active, which pulls glucose out of the bloodstream more effectively into the cell. Uh, you know, in in the kind of the post uh, exercise window, as opposed to perhaps you know eight ten hours later in the day, um, you're gonna you're not gonna quite have as much of a glute four effect. So your gonna body's gonna need to produce more insulin to get it into the cell. And of course, you know one of the key tips when it comes to um, longevity, good, healthy aging is keeping your insulin secretions under control. So that is an important, important thing to remember. Now, how about the leucine threshold, right? So, um, you know, I've heard a lot of other people talk about like three to four grams or so of leucine in like a certain eating window helps activate, uh, muscle protein synthesis is important to get enough leucine. What if they're doing like a lot of collagen protein or bone broth or something like that, that doesn't have as much leucine. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like uh, if that's all you're eating in a meal, then yeah, then maybe yeah. it's problematic, right? But uh, let's say if you cooked your rice in some bone broth and have some, uh, you know, meat with it or fish with yeah. it, right? Then uh, there's no, uh, you know, it's it's a, you you're combining protein sources there and making a complementary amino acid profile. So that only gets uh, so a lot of those things they sort of shake out in a uh, sort of you know laboratory setting. But then in sort of a real world uh, scenario, I think that those are, are more like details because, uh, you know, no one's consuming just whey protein or just uh, collagen protein uh, yeah. all throughout the day and uh, or even in single meals for that matter. So I, I would always opt to focus to do take a food force approach and just honestly try to eat a meal after your workout instead of, you know, a, a protein shake with uh just a bunch of you know glucose or other you know free, free sugars in it i'd definitely always opt for uh, for a food first approach and i understand that for some individuals that may be tricky or if you work out twice a day then maybe there's some benefit to uh, ingesting some uh some, some liquid foods but yeah i would always opt for just eating a eating a meal after your uh, your workouts before your workout insofar in possible and uh in that part, yeah, you don't need to worry really about uh, about those nuances. I mean, if you the leucine threshold basically indicates three to four grams of leucine, and then you know, let's assume we have an eight to ten percent um, leucine content. Yeah, so if you're looking at like you know, thirty to forty grams of protein, you're having a high amount, and maybe you want to shoot at the higher amount a little bit when you're on uh, uh, when you ingest a lot of plant-rich protein sources. They're typically a little bit lower in leucine or uh, essential amino acids, but once you get high enough, probably like the 40 grams per meal, uh, overall intake of 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight, even the amino acid differences between plant and animal sources become uh, irrelevant. And 
I suspect the same with, you know, if you have like, you know, 10 or 20% of your protein intake from, from collagen provided your protein intake is high enough that yeah. there's no uh, negatives. And you could argue maybe there's some benefit again. This is more from animal models that you, you know, ingesting enough glycine and methionine, mm. maybe, uh, uh, probably not a bad thing and maybe a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but although I'm not super convinced that uh, it would always shake out uh, in, in humans, right? We know protein restriction is a great thing when you're a rodent. But I'd say it's a really bad thing when you're a human. Yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. And so you're saying basically roughly about 30 to 40 grams of good whole food-based protein in your meal, trying to get that 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Now, if you're somebody that doesn't uh, look at kilograms like in the United States, you're roughly looking at about 0.8 to a gram of protein per pound of lean body tissue. Right. So if somebody's like 160 pounds, but they're, you know, 20% body fat. So then they would take, you know, that that would be what um 32 minus, I'm doing the math here in my head, but roughly somewhere around 130 grams or so of protein um for that individual will help with that muscle protein synthesis throughout the day and ideally getting it from whole food based nutrition because you get all those secondary compounds. Now you also have this great study that just came out in 2021, health-promoting phytonutrients are higher in grass-fed meat and milk. And so you compared grass-fed and grain-fed uh, cows, right, in their in their products or their dairy as well as their meat. And can you go into the results of that? Yeah. So we, we've, over the last few years, really got an interest in when we looked at those bioactive compounds that we talked about, right, in uh, dairy and in eggs, yeah. well, what would be the obvious way to increase these? Or decrease these, but preferably increase them. Is by the way animals are raised and how they are fed. So start to kind of let me down that uh, that research path, and uh, we've been doing a lot of profiling uh, with uh, beef and also other uh, other dairy and uh, uh, from various production systems. So so grass fed, grain fed, but I must say that's again painting with broad strokes. Amongst the grain fed, there's Grain fed isn't grain fed isn't grain fed. Grass fed isn't grass fed isn't grass fed because sort of the intensive rotational grazing, what farmers sometimes describe as regenerative grazing, gives you different uh, nutritional profiles than sort of continuous or unmanaged grazing where maybe, you know, the fields are overgrazed, the animals are sort of left free to roam wherever, but it's not really managed. So unmanaged grazing versus managed grazing gives you a difference too. So what we broadly found was is that when animals have are grazing biodiverse pastures, are moved around regularly so that they don't overgraze the plants, we see the highest uh, amounts of phytochemicals in their meat and milk, then it's sort of intermediate in the continuous grazing, and then the lowest amounts are found in feedlot or grain-finished uh, or grain-fed animal products such as meat and, and milk. So we're finding that and phytonutrients are essentially plant compounds they're secondary metabolized plants uh, that broadly have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects in, again, cell models. They may reduce the risk of cancer or may, you know, improve insulin sensitivity and things like that. In humans, again, we need more research on that, but at least sort of from a molecular standpoint, they should have, they can have these health effects. Not to say that eating grass-fed beef 
reduce your risk for cancer, that, that we cannot say, but these compounds that are accumulated in grass-fed beef in a sort of a laboratory-based setting, there may be a reduced risk of, of, of cancer in, in that regard. So um, humans do a thousand other things that could increase or decrease the risk of cancer, so it'd be hard to ever prove that, but on, on paper, it provides for a uh, yeah, more antioxidant-rich uh, meat. And, um, that can translate in whether that will translate into a health effect. That's something where we're studying right now in various randomized controlled trials because it certainly looks more nutrient dense on paper. And uh, uh, but I think the most the unique part of that also is is that yes, direct consumption of plants will be the main source of phytochemicals in the human diet. But animals can consume vegetation that you and I cannot consume. Certain grasses, certain forbs with medicinal properties that if we would eat those, we cannot digest them. But when the animal consumes them and low amounts or get incorporated into their meat and milk, that's a way for us to access those nutrients in a safe uh, manner. And how are you measuring those? Which ones are you looking at? Like omega-3 fats, conjugated linoleic acid? Are you looking at um, vitamin A levels, vitamin E? Which ones in particular are you seeing? Yeah, all of the above. We do a lot of fatty acid profiling, which yeah. is impacted by the forages because uh, grasses contain uh, alpha linoleic acid, which is the precursor to uh, uh, DHA, uh, EPA, and DPA, the omega-3 fatty acids. So we're measuring these things. CLA, we're measuring those too. But we're also using metabolomics approach to look at, at phytochemicals. And these could be things like chlorogenic acid, mm. uh, which is found rich in coffee as well. Right. Also right. get incorporated. Very good for insulin sensitivity, blood sugar stability. Yeah, it's powerful polyphenol. Yep. So you're yeah, finding absolutely. that in the meat, in the dairy. Yeah, you're finding it in the meat and then quinic acid, that'd be uh, uh, quercetin, wow. it'd be, uh, some of the, the, the compounds you find in green teas uh, we're, we're measuring. Um, catechins, yeah. Yeah, catechins, indeed. We're measuring mm -hmm. catechins. We're measuring uh, stachydrine and homostachydrine, which are, again, uh, often found in forages that could have potential anti-inflammatory effects. We're measuring a, a wide variety of, of terpenes as well, um, which can have medicinal properties. Yeah. So those terpenes are, are very adaptogenic. So a lot of adaptogens, ashwagandha, things like that have terpenes, which you know, are, are theoretically thought to almost kind of act like a, like a thermostat in our in our body, where they help kind of balance our physiology based on you know, our stress levels, our sleep, things like that to help give us more energy and more resilience. So very interesting. Yeah. And that's super, that is very interesting. And terpenes, you know, they're involved in probably blood pressure regulation yeah. and, and things like that are thought that, uh, you know, if you even walk through a forest or, or connect with nature, right, that you yeah. have the blood pressure effect, which may in part be true terpenes, but yeah, terpenes generally also have things like can, can control inflammation and things like that. So again, uh, uh, a lot of this has been studied in regards to, uh, to isolated compounds, and uh, certainly we need to study this more in the context of uh, uh, animal source foods and even plants mm -hmm. for that matter. But uh, um, yeah, I, there is definitely a role to, to play that on yeah. paper, these, these, these compounds seem to have uh, beneficial effects on uh, and may explain also, so there have been two studies uh, that have suggested that uh, aggressive beef and milk have an anti-inflammatory response. One is a short-term study where they compared kangaroo to feedlot finished beef. The kangaroo uh, 
uh, give less of an. Uh, we have always have some inflammation after eating, which is important. Mm -hmm. But if that response is too high and, and becomes chronic, then we run into issues. A little bit of inflammation is good to drive adaptations. What they found was is that we have a reduced inflammatory response with the uh, kangaroo, which the authors attribute to you know free range uh, or pasture mm -hmm. raised, right? They're wild animals. They consume a bunch of vegetation. And then there has been a study done in, in Italy, in Sardinia, where uh, pecorino cheese, animals, that the sheep that graze the mountain pastures, and mountain pastures amongst the most biodiverse pastures there are in the world. Because yeah. uh, you mean 50 different plants versus, you know, a, a grain-fed uh, animal and produce cheese from that. They found an inflammatory uh, reduction in inflammation. And uh, there have been a few more studies done like that with uh, uh, grass-fed beef. Uh, most have looked at omega-3 status, but... Uh, there is some, at least, you know, I say the data is not very strong, but there may be some suggestions to uh, to uh, sort of functional outcome, or I should say biomarker outcomes that may explain uh, the sort of the, the phytochemical richness in, in the meat and milk, and that it can potentially lead to at least uh, beneficial adaptations in biomarkers of metabolic health. I just want to interrupt this podcast and take a moment and tell you about the importance of electrolytes. We all need electrolytes in order to produce energy, in order for our nervous system to function well on a daily basis. And most people are just not getting enough electrolytes, especially when they start on a low carb ketogenic style diet or if they're doing intermittent fasting. And this is because when you go on a low carb diet or if you're practicing fasting, you get a big drop in insulin. And insulin's job is to actually cause you to retain sodium and other electrolytes. And so you actually start urinating them out. So when you're on a low carb diet, you're burning fat for fuel, but you need more electrolytes. In fact, there's a condition called the keto flu. And this is where people feel really bad when they start on a low carb keto style diet or if they start doing intermittent fasting and they don't have the electrolytes to support them. This is why I'm a huge fan of Element. It's L-M-N-T, that's the name of the company. And they contain a science-backed electrolyte ratio. That means 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, none of that stuff. You know, the average sports drink has 260 milligrams of sodium. That's not enough. 65 milligrams of potassium. That's a really low amount. They don't have magnesium. And the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar. That's going to spike your blood sugar and your insulin levels. Element, again, has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No sugar. It's flavored with stevia. And right now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you you can get a free sample pack of seven different packets of each flavor. They have great flavors, citrus, raspberry, watermelon, orange. Again, all flavored with stevia, all natural sweeteners, not gonna impact your blood sugar. They also have an unflavored. So if you're not into that, or if you don't do well with stevia, you get the unflavored as well. But you can get the sample pack now for free and you only cover the cost of shipping, which is roughly $5. Just go to the site, drink, element so drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers again that's drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers to get your free sample pack of element 
Again, Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Guys, try this out. You're gonna see a big jump in your energy and your performance. I mean, if you're a high-level athlete, you need electrolytes, try this out today. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm so glad that you're doing this research. I mean, honestly, this is really cutting edge stuff because again, most of the time people are just looking at, you know, primary nutrients and there's not that much difference, you know, when it comes to protein levels, I mean, there's probably no difference really in protein when it comes to grain fed, grass fed, um, you know, maybe a little bit more fat in the grain fed than the grass fed it tends to be a little bit leaner, but you're, a lot of these primary nutrients are similar, but when you're looking at these secondary compounds, you know, that's really going to make a difference. You know, it's, 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 or at least that's what we're trying to find out. Is that going to really make a difference in somebody's health, right? In a human health, but we're seeing differences there with the amount of these secondary compounds. And also what you mentioned there, there's a lot of different ranges between, you know, grass fed, right. And then very biodiverse kind of free roam, free range um, animals that are able to eat a diverse amount of pasture and different different greens and things like that, as opposed to like one type of grass and that's it. Yeah, no, correct. And you, you see that clearly in the data too, is that um, having visited many of these farms and a lot of field research, yeah, the ones that uh, use these uh, agroecological or, you know, to the layman, probably more known as regenerative principles in yeah. Uh, the proper term is probably agroecology, uh, where it's sort of nature-based solutions to farming. The farmers that adopt those approaches, they typically have an omega-6 to 3 ratio of close to, you know, 1 to 1 or, you know, 1, uh, 1.5 to 1. A lower ratio is typically considered better because mm -hmm. um, it has more omega-3s. So you see that in those farmers that that do these practices, you definitely see, and you see also the highest amounts of phytochemicals in their meat. And farmers that maybe, you know, overgraze a little bit or, or don't have as much plant diversity, they they're, uh, have don't have as much omega-3s and also not as much phytochemicals. And what's super interesting also, though, and, and it also tells you how hard it uh, gets, if you sort of um, source from the overall grass-fed beef supply chain from your grocery store maybe we've assembled some grass-fed beef from there and it looks like grain-fed beef their omega-6 mm. to 3 ratio so either they're well, wherever they're sourcing from and it's hard when you're an aggregator and you source from you know, 300 farms to control your, all the farms but anyway some of them look like feedlot finished beef or somebody even a little bit higher where i'm looking at the data i'm like you're not just feeding uh grass you're feeding yeah. grains too. it must be because that's the only explanation i have because and, a lot uh, of times if it says grass fed they can still grain finish i've heard that there's a difference between 100 percent grass fed and just like putting grass fed on there because they may have like early in their life been on grass but then they grain finished them over the last 90 days to kind of fatten them up yeah, I mean, typically most cattle start on grass and then are finishing a feedlot for I mean, three to four months. Uh, I mean, there are some exceptions where maybe dairy steers, maybe grain fed their their pretty much their entire life after they're weaned uh, from their from their mothers. But anyway, um, that is true. But usually, when you when something's labeled grass fed, it assumes it's it's grain finished, mm -hmm. but there's not a strong sort of verification of that label. 
what some farmers may do is is that they feel, feel still feed a bunch of uh, grain byproducts on pasture, for instance. Perhaps not always a bad thing. I think uh, when done appropriately and maybe in free choice, that could be a great way of upcycling some byproducts. But yeah, when that is when they're pushed up too high, uh, then uh, or or high, then you know you may uh, diminish some of the the phytochemical richness or the omega uh, three profiles. Of grass-fed beef but yeah that's again just a sort of a transparency uh, thing and uh yeah i mean in any industry there's probably some people taking shortcuts and uh, and you can see that but i must even say yeah. in, in the grain-fed beef you know you see it ranging from maybe like 15 to 1 omega-6 to 3 so a lot of omega-6s to some having like 7 to 1 so even amongst the grain-fed uh, uh if you feed like the stiller grains then you might have a, a lot of omega-6 fatty acids. But if you feed more like whole shell corn or something like that, then you're bringing some of that, uh, those omega-6s down. So there's typically, you know, there's sort of this variation across yeah. supply chain in general. Yeah, yeah. It, really interesting. Now, last question for you. What, what sort of research are you working on right now? Like what is fascinating you about the projects you're currently working on right now that haven't yet been published? So we're working on a project, a big randomized controlled trial. We are running uh, about 36 people, uh, or we hope for 36 finishers. Um, is we are they are feeding what we call sort of a regenerative uh, diet versus yeah. a conventional diet. The mm -hmm. conventional diet is meat, eggs, dairy, fruits, vegetables, all sourced from sort of your your conventional non-organic produce from a store. A lot of it's come from, you know, sort of monoculture, heavily tilled agriculture. And then we're sourcing from integrated crop livestock systems, um, the meat and, and the fruits and vegetables. We're even sourcing some of the grains like uh, that are, you know, there's now a new label, regenerative organic certified. So most of it we honestly get from farms, like 80, 90%, but maybe we source some like, you know, quote unquote regenerative oats from General Mills and some of the rice companies have some, you know, agroecological practices. And uh, uh, so we're sourcing an entire diet made from regenerative farming practices versus conventional farming practices. And to see, is there an additional benefit to these regenerative farming practices on human health? So it's a seven-week randomized controlled trial. Each diet consumed for seven weeks. Uh, all foods are provided to individuals. And granted, most people are consuming a standard American diet. So my guess would be is that even on the sort of conventional diet, we will make them healthier. But are there additional health benefits to a you know, regenerative produced diet? That's uh, something we're, we're studying at the moment. And so very excited about that project. And then we have another big project. We call it our Beef Nutrient Density Project. We are looking to include 250 farms, anywhere ranging from regenerative grass fat to, to grain fat and anything in between, really to get a feel for the supply chain and how different practices impact the nutritional profiles. And can we detect a different or sort of a is healthy soils, healthy plants, animals, humans relationship within those do more sustainable practices lead to more nutrient dense uh, uh, food. So we're inviting beef farmers also to uh, uh, contribute to that project. We just did our first big run this summer. We're doing another one in the fall. So we're just building up this database to hopefully reach 250 farms all across uh, North America. We also have farms now from Australia, Europe. So mm -hmm. maybe you're even a global thing. Uh, and then just looking at, uh, can we detect patterns in, in production practices? Does the farmer in North Dakota 
and the farmer in the UK, when they do these agroecological practices, do they both result in a nutrient-dense piece of meat? And can we detect what these practices exactly are and, uh, and, and the relationship? And so far, the data is, uh, is promising. It'll probably take a few years before we publish it all. But yeah, I mean, farms that have improved markers of soil health and more plant diversity do have better omega-6 to 3 ratios and also have uh, more phytochemicals in their meat. That's, that's what yeah. we're seeing right now in our, in our initial data of about say 50 farms or so that we profiled. Well, that's really great. So I'm excited to see the results when that gets published. And this is the information we got to get out to the public. Right? People need to know this um, so they can make really educated decisions when it comes to their overall health. Obviously, we got an obesity crisis. We have a chronic inflammatory disease crisis. And a lot of that is perpetuated by the food that we're consuming. And so understanding this kind of research is important that, and that we really get it out. And so Thank you, Dr. Van Vliet, for all the great work you're doing. And guys, you can check out all his publications and his website. Um, it's just stevenvanvliet.com. That'll be in the show notes, uh, but stevenvanvliet.com. You're putting out some great work there. And I love how all your studies are open open source, so you don't need like a you know a, a membership to, uh, to the journal to actually be able to read through them all. I, I just need to sell all my kidneys off one by one hopefully they're taking good care of you over there yeah no it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, but yeah it's it's an unfortunate part of the academic publishing industry is that uh open access is always like three to five thousand dollars yeah um but yeah i think it's important to try to write it into our grants or just pay for it from like you know some discretionary funds so that yeah i mean you know it's kind of ridiculous that uh um you have studies that you're doing from like federal funds or so like that. And then the public can't view it because it ends up behind a paywall, right? That's, right. that's, that's a shame because it's important to go. So yeah, we always try to pay open access or, or nowadays I just always pay open access and uh, uh, yeah, just take that into account so that uh, it's, it's freely available for people to read. So. For sure. Well, thank you so much. And we'll definitely get you back on the podcast here uh, as you start to publish some of these other these findings that you're doing and always uh, interested in the great work that you're doing. So thanks again for your time, guys. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Check out uh, stephenvanvliet.com. Uh, and that way you can look at his work and we'll see you on a future podcast. Be blessed. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.